Hello, morning. All right. Today's reading comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth and Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she was oh, so she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, "Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you?" And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink when the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles of her, and leave it to her, to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epaph of barley. And she took, took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, 
May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaned until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The Lord of the uh, the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome. Um, it's been a few weeks uh, since we uh, started with the Book of Ruth, and so let me just remind you uh, what's happened so far. The story of Ruth takes place in the day of the judges when the judges ruled, and so it's a kind of theological reflection on that period of history. And the story of Ruth, of Naomi, and of Boaz shows us what faithfulness might look like during a time of chaos and uncertainty when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, a time not unlike ours today. In chapter 1, you remember that a family of four from Bethlehem migrated to Moab during a period of famine. And over a period of a decade or so, the husband and the two sons died, leaving Naomi a widow with two Moabite daughters-in-law. Then Naomi hears that God has revisited Israel with food, and so she decides to return. And seeking what is best for her daughters-in-law and not herself... She tells them to stay in Moab as they will have much better opportunities for success, for remarriage, and the life than to return with her to Israel in an uncertain future. One of the daughters-in-law, Orpah, reluctantly but faithfully obeys her. But Ruth defies her wishes and binds herself to Naomi and insists on returning with Naomi. And so these two widows return together to Bethlehem and arrive at the beginning of the barley harvest, which brings us to our reading today. In chapter 1, Naomi's decisions drove the actions, but now back in Bethlehem, Naomi quietly acquiesces as Ruth makes the decisions on their behalf to work, to glean on their behalf. It's not that Naomi is uh, physically incapable of working. After all, she's made a trek from Moab to Bethlehem. But I think, you know, she's, she's lost her spouse. She's lost her two sons. She suffered catastrophic financial loss. She's told her former neighbors to no longer call her Naomi, meaning pleasant, but Mara, meaning bitter. Uh, she's in a lot of pain, depression. As Philip Yancey writes, pain narrows vision. The most private of sensation, it forces us to think of ourselves and little else. And I think in addition to the trauma that she suffered in Moab, she's probably ashamed of having essentially to beg in her hometown from her former neighbors. And so true to her promises, it's Ruth who takes up the, uh, the workload and goes to glean Uh, among the barley harvesters so that she and Naomi can have something to eat and survive. Uh, I want to just make uh, two reflections with you 
today. First is in verse 3, we're told that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Literally, it reads, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. Other translations go with, as luck would have it, or it just so happened. It just so happened is a narrator telling us that there was no human intention behind the choice of this particular field. It's a random choice that the world would attribute to luck or to fate, or if you're romantic, to destiny. Ruth might have gone to any other field. There were many other fields. And the story would have turned out quite differently. But in the eyes of faith, what looks like a random human choice freely made actually works in concert with the sovereign will of God. So-called chance and God's providence work together in what the Apostle Paul and Peter will later call divine choreography. Theologians call this concurrence. Regardless of people's intents or motivations or actions, the outcome ultimately achieves God's perfect will. God's providence sustains, cares for, and governs the world so that it moves toward the destiny for which God created the world. But at the same time, God invites us to participate with him in the completion of those plans. We are not mere spectators to the work of God in the world. So we know God's overarching plans, and though we may not understand our particular role in that plan, we can have confidence that everything, including what we might call luck, coincidence, good or evil human intent, it will all work concurrently with God's ultimate good purposes. We see this, for example, in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Despite the desires of his brothers to destroy him, Joseph saw that even their evil intent was being used providentially by God for rescue, for the deliverance of the world. Genesis 50.20, he tells his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's the same with Jesus. The Romans, Pilate, the crowds, the Jewish leaders all freely conspired to destroy Jesus. And they all thought that they were in control and were defeating the purposes of God. But in fact, it all worked together to fulfill God's will. It's not luck, good or bad. Um, I remember uh, when we were in Simba, Pastor Lee asked the students why it was that of all the high schools in the country of Kenya, they were the ones that were chosen to receive support from Graceway Church. It appears like luck, right? They just happened to get picked among the other schools. But it isn't. It's because God somehow chose to bless them, and we get to participate in God's blessings for them. When we sent the team to West Virginia, was it mere luck that Joe and Susan happened to just pick that state, and mere coincidence that that particular town and church were chosen? 
It can look that way, but it's not. Somehow, God is working in the background, behind the scenes, to choose to bless those people. And again, we get to be a part of God's blessings for them. And I think this is how Naomi is now able to reinterpret her life. And this is the way we can interpret our own lives. It's a sign of her healing and a sign, I think, of our maturity. When she sees how her fortunes are shifting, she says in verse 20, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That's a very interesting phrasing that she uses here, because it's unclear grammatically whose kindness she's talking about. Is it the kindness of Boaz, who has not abandoned her, or is it the kindness of God? The grammar can go both ways, and it should. Sometimes it is very difficult to disentangle the two because God's kindness is almost always mediated through people. God's chesed, or his loyal covenantal faithfulness, originates from God and from God's character, but it requires human agency. Boaz said, he recognized that it is God who's going to show Ruth favor. It is God, you know, that he wants to bless uh, Ruth. And it's absolutely true. It all comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. But at the same time, we also know that it is through Boaz, it is through human beings, that God will show that favor. And I think this is the way most of us experience blessing most of the time, isn't it? It's usually through people that we feel blessed by God. Maybe someone offers you a word of comfort, a prayer, treats you to a meal, runs an errand for you, or even does something extraordinarily kind. We interpret that as a blessing from God, but it comes through people. It's chance, or seeming chance, and the providence of God working together concurrently. So I think the question in Ruth isn't whether or not God works with coincidence and luck. It's clear that God does. The bigger question that this is asking is why is it that God chooses to work with Ruth? She's a poor, widowed Moabite. Repeatedly in this book, she's called a Moabite to emphasize her foreignness. She is not of Israel. God is the God of Israel, not the God of the Moabites. And I think that's the larger question that is being asked. That's the bigger message of Ruth. God is not only the God of Israel, but the God of all people, including the Moabites. Just as God cared for the Egyptian single mom, Hagar, just as God healed Naaman, the Syrian leper, just as God had sent Elijah to protect the Sidonian widow, just as God sent Jonah to the children of Nineveh, the Assyrians, God repeatedly shows himself to be the God of all people, particularly those who are weak and vulnerable. What the Israelites failed to understand repeatedly is that God's plan of redemption was much bigger than the rescue of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. God's plan involved the salvation of the entire world in Jesus Christ. And the story of Ruth, the seemingly chance meeting of Ruth and Boaz, is a part of that overarching plan of redemption. I don't think we can know exactly how God will use our decisions, and this is not to suggest that every sort of piece of 
um, luck is you know, some sort of divine and meaningful thing. I, I think we can only infer what's going on, and maybe as we look back, uh, we, we can see that. Certainly, Ruth and Boaz had no idea that they were going to marry and produce a child whose eventual descendant would be King David, and that his descendant eventually would be Jesus Christ. They, they, they had no idea. They couldn't. All they can do in the moment, and all we can do in the moment, is to act with faithfulness, with the chesed of God. And in that, and in that we can know that no matter how challenging life may get for us, we can have the confident hope that God is always with us and working with us for our good and for the working out of his plan of redemption for the world. And, and so knowing that all of this is working together then the question I want to ask uh, us today is this. The question I want to ask is, how wide, how wide are your edges? How wide are your edges? Let me, let me explain that a little bit. As I understand it, uh, since I know nothing about farming, uh, the way barley harvesting works is that young men would go through the fields with a sickle and they would you know, grab a bundle and they would just chop it down and then they would leave them in piles. And then a group of women, young women, would follow behind them and they would gather the sheaves, tie them in a knot and, you know, stand them up like that. And then these gleaners would come and they would pick up like the loose grains that are left over. That's kind of the way it uh, generally worked. That's the way I understand it. So it was up to the owners to allow these gleaners uh, the poor, the homeless, uh, to, to come and pick up the scraps, the, the grains that were, you know, that fell out from, this, from the sheaves. Um, so it, as you can imagine, the gleaners, um, you know, it, it would be partly luck, right? Maybe the group that were, the women that were collecting uh, the bundles, you know, they're, they're very, very conscientious. They gather every last stalk, so you get maybe one little barley grain that's, that fell to the ground. Or maybe you, you get really lucky and this person is really careless and like there's lots left over and so you pick up a bunch, something like that. Now, now gleaning, this idea of following behind the reapers and the, the gatherers, uh, these gleaners, it was a law that God made to provide a social safety net for the poorest in their communities. Leviticus 19, 9-10 says this, God said, when you reap the harvest of your land, You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. You hear that? So you got a field, and you you can reap, you can chop all that down, but not up to the very edges of your field. You got to leave a little bit along the edges so that the poor can have something to eat. You get that? Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So you can gather the sheaves, but whatever falls out, you cannot collect the leftovers. You've got to leave that alone so that the poorest in the land can have something to eat. You shall not strip your vineyards bare, right? Leave a few grapes and figs. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. That's the law. And this command gets repeated a few chapters later in Leviticus and appears again in Deuteronomy 24. It's an important rule. It's it's to provide some some bare minimum of protection for the poorest in their communities. God commanded landowners, 
not to harvest every inch of their fields, but to leave the edges of their fields so that the poor, the sojourner, and later in Deuteronomy were told the fatherless, the widows, could have something to eat. And Ruth fits every single one of those categories. But remember, this is a time of the judges, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, not what God commands. Gleaners were subject to various dangers and abuse. And Naomi knows this, right? She says, you know, stay there because otherwise you might get assaulted. There's, there's dangers all around, all about. And so Ruth knows that she has to depend on someone to show her favor. As she says, an owner in whose eyes I find favor. Because everyone's eyes is in whatever they want. But she's, I, I need to find favor in the eyes of someone. Right? And so an owner could technically, legally, right, if they want to obey God's rules, they could just leave one millimeter of the edges of their field. They could do that. They're fulfilling the law. You know, I I left a, a millimeter among the edges of my field for the poor. You could do that. Ruth asked to glean and gather among the sheave after the reapers. Now, this is really interesting. She's not asking to wait until the, the men have gone through and the women have gone through and then to come and pick up the leftover. She's asking to be with the other women who would be gathering the sheaves into the bundles. So she's asking for a little bit more. She's made a bold request considering her position. She appears to be challenging Boaz to go beyond the letter of the law, to do more than just barely provide enough barley to have the two widows survive day to day. Boaz could be legalistic and say, no, you know, you just, you go after the, um, after the women and you just gather whatever's left over. He could rightfully and legally, even righteously, refuse a request And no one could judge him. But instead, he chooses to enlarge his edges. He allows her to glean with the other young women working in the field. Not only that, he allows her to drink water. He makes sure that she's not sexually harassed by the young men in the field. He then invites her to eat with the rest of his employees during lunch break. He makes sure that she has enough to eat, that she has so much that she has leftovers. It's probably the first meal where where she was full in a long time. And then to top it all off, I mean, this is amazing, he even tells his workers to take some of the sheaves that were already gathered and just kind of leave them for her and to don't embarrass her and to allow her to gather as much as she wants, right? I mean, he's throwing away some of his profits, For the sake of this woman. Why does he do this? Ruth certainly recognized that this is not normal and wonders about his generosity. Right? Because normally, if you were lucky, you might gather just enough barley for a meal for the day and you would, you know, without getting harassed. But Ruth goes home with the equivalent of something like a 50 pound sack of barley, enough to last for at least several weeks for the two women. 
Naomi too realizes that this is not normal, and she begins to interpret it as a sign of God's favor returning on her life. It's a part of her healing process. So we might wonder, is this a special case? Or does Boaz treat everyone this way? Um, Many modern readers want to read into this story a romantic story. Boaz sees Ruth, he, he notices her, and uh, he just immediately falls in love with her, and so he's going to do all this stuff um, you know, to help her, that, to impress her. Um, but I, I think that is not what is going on here at all. Um, maybe that's disappointing for you. That, um, I, I think the story, in fact, works against that line of interpretation because there is an important omission, omission uh, about Ruth, and that is her appearance. Uh, many of the other stories in the scripture about the notable women uh, describe the women as being very beautiful. And their beauty, in fact, plays a role in the stories that play out. Uh, Sarah, Rachel, Tamar, Bathsheba, Abigail, Vashti, Esther, the daughters of Joe. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, lot of that going on. But Ruth is never described in terms of her looks. We, we have no idea what she looks like. She's only described as a Moabite, emphasizing her foreignness, right? And in terms of her character. Boaz reveals that he's heard about her faithfulness, what she's done for Naomi. That's what draws him to her. He's heard the rumors, right, the town gossip, about how Ruth was faithful to her mother-in-law. And that's what impresses him. It could be that she was gorgeous, but that doesn't play a part in his approach toward her. And I think more telling than that is when Boaz first appears on the scene in verse 4, his very first words are, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Okay, never mind. (laughs) I thought it would be so ingrained into you by now that when you heard the Lord be with you, you would respond with, and also with you. And, and And his workers, his workers respond with, the Lord bless you. And, and, you know, I, I think I want to change the way we do this in our, in our church. Um, instead of saying, and also with you, I think we ought to go with, the Lord bless you. The Lord be with you, and when we respond with, the Lord bless you. Uh, I know that the reason I'm reluctant to do that is because if you ever go to another church and they say, the Lord bless you, you're supposed to say, and also with you. But uh, the Catholic Church, not too uh, long ago, changed their wording. So instead of, and also with you, now they respond with, um, and I think, and also with your spirit, something like that, right? So I, I think it's okay to change it. Because um, <laughs> I think for the person who gets to say, the Lord be with you, and you all say, the Lord, but let's, let's try this. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. See, I feel really good. Like everyone's telling me the Lord, <laughs> Right? So maybe we ought to do it that way. Um, given that this is the time of the judges for Boaz to greet his workers and for the, uh, the workers to respond this way, I, I think it, it points to his faith. It, it points to a man of faith, someone who recognizes the God of Israel and whose life demonstrates this, this uh, covenantal loyalty that they share. He's been blessed by God. He recognizes that. And so now he's able to bless others, including Ruth. Um, He's been challenged to go beyond the letter of the law, and he responds with generosity. He provides not only for Ruth's survival, but makes possible 
for her to have a little breathing room and perhaps even to thrive. Not just scraps, but enough so that she doesn't have to have the daily anxiety of where's my next meal coming from. He also calls her daughter and and gives her the sense of belonging. She's not just a Moabite. He, He invites her into his larger circle of family. He uses his power to ensure her protection as she works. He uses his power to make sure that she's not harassed nor embarrassed by her poverty by the other workers. He invites her to sit and to eat with him and the rest of his full-time employees. He treats his workers, even part-timers, and maybe we could even say perhaps even an undocumented migrant like Ruth, with dignity. He models how those in power might treat others in times of difficulty and uncertainty. He's committed to the well-being, not, not just the just barely getting by, but to the well-being, the shalom of even poor immigrant widows. You know, in, in one sense, it's, this, it's an amazing thing that he does. It's the time of the judges. And so anyone acting in a manner that is generous or righteous, it comes as a surprise. We saw what happened at the end of Judges, how men treated women, especially in Bethlehem. So we know this is, this is really, really kind of a, a, a radical, extraordinary thing that he does. But looked in another way, it's nothing. Giving one of his workers a few extra pounds of barley for someone like Boaz Given his wealth, his standing in community, providing a few extra protections for a worker, it's not going to impact or lessen his status or wealth even the tiniest amount. Right? He's a powerful, wealthy, prominent man. Giving away, you know, a bag of barley makes no difference to him. It really it has no impact in his life. But it makes all the difference in the world for Ruth and for Naomi. You know, I suppose it would be easy for, for us to say, you know, all the billionaires, you know, they ought to just give away a couple of million dollars to, to help the poor or something like that because it's not going to impact their lives to give away a million dollars, right? But we all, we all have great resources. And I'm not just talking about money. Right? We all have tremendous resources that we could give to make the lives of others better without making much of a difference in our own lives. I'm not even talking about making sacrifices now. I'm just talking about enlarging the edges of our resources just a little bit to bless others so that they might have a little bit more freedom from the anxieties of life. You know, Harry shared a couple of weeks ago about sponsoring kids in Kenya. And, you know, for most of us, you know, giving away a few uh, extra hundred dollars a year, I mean, it's really not going to make any difference, really, right? I mean, we're, we're incredibly blessed that way, that, that we have the, uh, the privilege to be able to do that. But as you heard, that might make all the difference in the lives of those kids. It's the difference be- between being in school and, and not, Right? And maybe being able to go to college or not. I think walking with Jesus 
you know, challenges me, uh, as, as Ruth does here, to, to broaden my edges, to go beyond what is merely legal and fair in the letter of the law. Just how can I increase the edges of my life, the borders of my resources, to release some of the extra profits, if I, if I can use that word, in my life, to bless others. Right. Some of you right now, uh, some of you young people, you, you're blessed with a lot of, lot of strength. Some of us older folks, you know, we're, we've got bad backs, we can't lift stuff, right? Maybe you can release some of your strength just to carry stuff with, you know, cleaning and setting up in the, in the church, right? Some of you have been blessed with, with financial resource. You, you can release that. Some of you just have more time on your hands right now. And, and some of you have incredible gifts like music and everything else where, where you can, again, just enlarge the margins of your life just a little bit. You know, I, I can't, I don't know anything really about national economic policies and all of that. But at least in my own life, I can widen the edges. And I can tell you that, you know, over the years, this congregation, you guys, you have so blessed me because you've been so generous uh, in supporting the work that we've been trying to do as a church. And so I want to I encourage you to continue to do what you've been doing, but also to challenge you today to expand those edges just a little bit further. Think about how much of your fields can you release to bless the world? Who are the people in your life? Who are the Ruths in your life that are maybe asking you for a little bit more? Who are the people in your life that maybe you can invite into your circle of family and friends to share a meal? Who are the people around you that you can use your power to provide a little more protection and safety? You know, many of you, maybe all of you really, are in positions of power where you have authority or resources or something where, you, where you, you can do something for someone. And I just want to challenge you today to just think about how might I just push those margins just a little bit closer to you so that the edges of your life are broadened to include just maybe one more person. To look around, those of you who have employees, those of you who have students, we all have neighbors and you have classmates. What might I do to broaden the edges so that I can help bring about God's shalom, God's peace, God's covenantal promises? How might I work with God's providence to bring about healing? Let's pray together. God, we know that... um, And we can trust that all is working toward your perfect will for your glory, for our good. God, help us to consider how we might expand the edges of our lives, to broaden our generosity, to make possible for others to also enjoy the blessings that you have given to us. Help us to Open our eyes to see what you would have us see. And in seeing God, help us 
to act in a way that is faithful, that brings you glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.